Well, good morning again, Crosswalk. Good to see you. Thanks for coming and worshiping with us today. My name is Patty McCoy. I get to be the lead pastor of this incredible place that God has planted here in Portland during a pandemic with some of the coolest people on earth. So we are excited to have you here. I have to say that over the last few weeks, I've continued to see new faces, people that we haven't had the opportunity to see before um, yet, and so it's exciting to have you here. If you're here visiting for the first time, welcome. We hope you experience this as a place where you can belong, a safe space uh, where you can meet great people, have some good coffee, get some sugar, apparently, extra today, um, and uh, catch a glimpse of Jesus, most importantly of all. And so thanks for, thanks for coming. Thanks for trusting. Yesterday we had about 50 kids here for a school's out summer bash uh, with blow-up houses and all sorts of things. I let the kids play a little bit. I did most of the bouncy housing. Um, so they had to wait their turn. <laughs> um, and uh, that's why you see some of the so sidewalk chalk out front and, and those kinds of things. So we're excited uh, to be here. Uh, so last night I got a call from um, uh, the ministerial director for the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists. So that is the faith tribe we are a part of. Um, and they are getting ready. Tomorrow morning I leave to uh, the beautiful state of Kentucky. <clears throat> As I said last week, Adventists like to gather in places where there's nothing else to do. So that all you can do is go to the meetings. Uh, and so, uh, but I got a call last night from the ministerial director because their host for the event got COVID. Um, and they asked, having heard that I've had it twice and am vaccinated, <laughs> that this guy, and you know, there's thousands of... Um, and so he asked me if I'd be willing to host, um, and you know, there's thousands of pastors and people from all over North America that go there, and I said, well, I mean, I, I will on one condition, and that is that I get to do it in my own skin. Um, and and uh, Pastor Tim Gillespie is also presenting at one of those. He and I will be doing a lot of stuff together out there, and, and they said the dress code is business casual. I said, well, you know that for us, business casual is a crosswalk t-shirt, jeans, and tennis shoes. And that's what we're going to wear. So, yeah. No suits, none of that kind of stuff. And I said, uh, and, and the ministerial director has seen me MC events before, and so I said, you know that I may say something that sounds like I'm making fun of Adventism. And that's because I am. <laughs> because, <laughs> this is what I believe, like, I have grown up as an Adventist. I'm a part of the tribe. Um, and if we can't laugh at ourselves, then we're just going to cry. So a little bit of laughter at ourselves, I think, is a healthy and a good thing. Um, so uh, that's where we get to hang out over the next few days. Pray for us as we represent what God is doing through the Crosswalk community um, around the country and in different places around the world. So we're excited for that. As we said, this is our eighth week of the Christophany series, going through the Old Testament, searching for places in which God appears in a way that leads us to Jesus. They are incarnations, not the incarnation, but incarnations of the divine in these holy moments. And scripture is there. Jesus said, all of scripture points to me. And so if we're not seeing Jesus as we read through all of Scripture, then we're missing something. C.S. Lewis once said, It is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. The Bible, read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him. 
And today we jump into the book of the prophet Isaiah to look for our next God sighting and where we are pointed to Jesus in this book. And our passage today has been said by some to be one of the most poetic and powerful chapters of scripture. I'm really aware at the moment of the people sitting like right over here. I don't know why I'm locked into that today, but I just, I, the poll is there and so I feel bad for you. But maybe it's better to hear me and not see me because this isn't, ugh. Um, so I'm just going to let that go. Um, so Isaiah chapter 40 is the passage we're going to spend time in today. But before we jump into the text, let's set the stage so we know who and what, who Isaiah was writing to and what he was addressing. So the people of Israel had again done evil in the eyes of the Lord. What that meant, as we talked about last week as well with the story of Gideon, is that meant that they had turned to other gods. Though they felt abandoned by God, they were the ones that had abandoned God. They worshipped other idols and they acted in ways that were not in their best interest. Ways that were harming themselves and harming others. And God cares, us too, cares about us too much to leave us in those kinds of places. But despite all of God's efforts to get them to turn from their wicked ways, Israel just kept drifting farther and farther away from him. So again, like in the story of Gideon, God passes judgment on Israel and allows them to endure the full consequences of their choices. You know, over the last few years, I've been listening to Scripture a lot more than I've been reading Scripture. Um, The Bible originally was meant just to be heard because not a lot of people were going to have access to their own. And so I've been listening through, if you want to try a new app, there is a subscription, but it's a great app. You can listen to all sorts of different versions. You can listen to someone who's British, which makes me feel like James Bond, um, or other voices. Um, But I remember a few years ago I was listening and it was going through some of these places where it says Israel had done evil in the eyes of the Lord and then they turned and they repented and God rescued and then they did evil and they returned and repented and God rescued. They did evil and I was just getting so frustrated with the Israelites that I showed up to church and I saw the administrative assistant there and I just walked in and I said, man, I could kill me some Israelites, which is a little harsh. But it's just so frustrating to read how often they did things that weren't in their best interest, even though God was there saying, no, this is a better way. They kept falling into their sin. So God passes judgment, allowing them to endure the full consequences of their choices. This time, those consequences involved being taken captive by the powerful forces of Assyria and Babylon. And Babylon was the harsher one in the sense that Babylon was seeking to destroy everything that made the Israelites Israelites. The Babylonians destroyed their city, Jerusalem. They tore down its walls, and worst of all, they leveled the temple of their God. Destroyed it. That temple was their sole identity. It represented the presence of God. And if the presence of God in the temple where God dwelt is gone, who are they? What do they do now that the temple has been destroyed? They were truly lost. Many of the Jews were sent then to exile in Babylon, not to become slaves as much like they were in Egypt, but rather the Babylonians wanted to do something worse. They wanted to assimilate the Jews, make them become Babylonians. They wanted to erase the Israelites' past, make them forget about their God, destroy their history and their traditions. They forced them to worship their gods, adopt their rituals, and live their way of life. 
So after years of this kind of treatment and constant pressure, the Israelites were losing identity and purpose and hope. And people who lose identity and purpose and hope can almost become like zombies, going through the emotions of life without experiencing any of the joy of life. In World War II, American prisoners of war in Japan uh, at times were forced to, as, part, as a way to break their spirit, they were forced to dig holes. And they spent hours digging a hole, and then when they were done, they'd be told to fill that hole back in. And then go to another place, dig a hole, fill it in, dig a hole, fill it in. The digging had no purpose. It was for, they were accomplishing nothing. They kept repeating the process, and the journey causes a person to feel less than human. It breaks the spirit, and it creates a sense of utter hopelessness. And that's what I imagined it was like for the Israelites in Babylon. But their time in Babylon, though devastating, was not a complete shock to them. Because the prophet Isaiah had predicted what was going to happen. Isaiah chapter 1 through 39 predicts all of these things and all of these things came true. And so by biblical standards, it made Isaiah a true prophet because what he said came true. So to a people without a purpose, lost, humiliated, weak, full of shame and utter embarrassment by the events of Isaiah 1 to 39... God now speaks again through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel, and now the message changes from judgment to hope. In Isaiah 40, the prophet Isaiah speaks again the words of the Lord. He speaks to them after years of captivity and exile, and what may seem surprising is how quickly the Israelites are to believe these words. I mean, if they thought God was gone, or at least God was too weak to help them, then why were they so quick to believe words of the Lord? Well, we have to remember what Isaiah said before came true. So if Isaiah is going to say it now, it's likely to come true. And they were a people in a desert wasteland and desperate for a cool drink of water. And so they hear the words of the Lord from Isaiah 40, which begins, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. Comfort. The Hebrew word here for comfort is to provide strength, encouragement, to console. God is ready to draw his children once again to his side, and he does so with tenderness, pardoning and forgiving her of her past sins. And not just her past sins, but the shame that goes along with it. And it's important to address something here in the spiritual world. There is a difference between guilt and shame. And if you want to get good language for this, I suggest reading almost anything by Brene Brown. She does a great job working and talking about what shame really is. Guilt can be a positive thing. Guilt can turn us away from our destructive choices and our sin and to make a change in our lives. But shame is something that makes us feel unworthy. We feel unworthy to come to God because we're dirty. We've made so many bad choices. Why would God give of his life and then put something on us that would keep us at an arm's length from him? 
That's not how God works. God is all about bringing us in, holding us close, forgiving us, pardoning us of our sins, removing our shame. So be sure to recognize the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt can be positive. Shame is a tool of the devil to keep you at an arm's length. Know the difference. And so God not only offers forgiveness, he removes their shame and those voices that tell them they're not worthy enough to come to God. He wants to heal them, reconcile them, and restore them. It's actually repented of their sins. And just like last week in our story in Gideon, we don't see that action, but we see a God who is ready to forgive and reconcile. He's ready to offer a way for those past sins to be remembered no more. And from God's point of view, they had suffered the consequences of their choices long enough. It was time for a rescue, time to console them in their grief. And when you are grieving and you are hurting, if you've ever lost a loved one or a relationship that was significant to you or a job that meant a lot to you, you know how wild and unpredictable the journey of grief and pain can be. And if you've been through this journey or are going through it now, you know that the best form of comfort in these times isn't words, it's presence. And God promises that presence. He says, verse 9, O Zion, messenger of good news, shout from the mountaintops. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. God sends us his presence because there is nothing like presence in a time of need. Now, I don't know about you, you get into those situations with someone who has lost a loved one, you're at a funeral or something, and you feel like you have to say something, like you have to fill that dead space. And sometimes we say silly things, silly things like, oh, it was God's will, God's plan. Rest assured, at a funeral, none of that was God's plan. And we say things, but in reality, the best thing we could ever do is just be present and, and recognize I'm speaking as a talker. And so I know it's hard sometimes just to bite your tongue, to be still, and to be in a moment. Um, but I've had the privilege and the burden of being in far too many a painful and difficult thing. One time I was in Seattle after a student had been hit by a bicycle and really died on the scene. They kept her alive to be able to um, harvest her organs. She saved seven other people's lives because of the gift of her organs. But in that room that day, with a person far too young, as I stood by her bedside and held her hand, she wasn't conscious or anything. I didn't have the words. But something overwhelmingly came, a feeling came over me, and I just leaned over and gave her a kiss on her forehead. Her mom... <laughs> Just in her grief, in her moment, she, she was like, oh, do that again, I want to take a picture. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but just to be there in that moment. A few years uh, ago, I had a close friend of mine from college whose 21-year-old brother was killed in a car accident. She was in Ohio, I was out here, and my wife and I talked, we knew I had to go out to be with her. She had very little family left in her life, and so I flew across country to be there for her and with her, to be presence. 
and I went to the mall first that was close to her house in order just, I wanted to buy her something, thinking that was going to help. And I walked into the mall, and I happened to see her standing in the middle of this mall, looking lost and overwhelmed. I started walking towards her, and then our eyes met, and we embraced. And for five minutes, we didn't say a word. We just wept. Presence. We need presence in our time of need. And when we have lost all hope, when our world is crashing down around us, God promises his presence. He promises to be with us. In fact, with is his middle name. Emmanuel, God with us. And God cares a lot more about our withness than our witness. Withness first. And in the promise of his witness, we see that we serve a God who not only wants to save us, but is more than able to do so. We see the God described in John 3, 16 and 17. I always put those together. It's important for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. The passage in Isaiah 49 to 11, speaks to the coming Messiah, God's one and only Son, God's instrument of salvation. It reminds us yet again that salvation is God's work, that his desire is to save us at all cost to himself. And we also see in this passage the God who is both powerful enough to rule and to protect, but also to save, gentle enough to carry us in his arms close to his heart. And when I think about this tension between power and tenderness of God, I think of my own dad. My dad passed away about 10 years ago, um, but he was a big guy, six foot three, 350 pounds, which he said was all muscle, but we knew better. (laughs) And my dad could be super intimidating when he wanted to be, something he did not pass on to me. When I look at people trying to be intimidating, they often just laugh my children included. And I think it's because I'm just too darn cute. That's my curse. That's my burden to bear. But my dad can make you tuck your tail between your legs and run with just a look, right? And then when my brothers and I got into trouble, which I was thinking about this this morning, one of the things, we we did stuff all the time, but one thing I I remember thinking, you know, with my brothers, it would be a really cool idea if we doused a tennis ball in gasoline and then lit it on fire and rolled it down our street with cars parked all along the side of the street. And as soon as we lit it and let go, my dad pulled around the corner. He was at the grocery store when we started this grand scheme. And then as soon as we committed the evil sin, he comes around the corner. He was omnipresent. (laughs) Um, and, uh, And so my dad, all my dad had to do was line us up. We had a, a hearth in front of the fireplace. He'd line us up. He'd take off that leather belt that, you know, it was like the late 70s, early 80s. So that belt was like eight inches wide and three inches thick, right? And he'd just walk back and forth and say, boys, what'd you do wrong? Snap. He'd snap the belt. What'd you do? Snap. And like we were crying in tears, confessing our sins, and my dad didn't even have to touch us. It was just the intimidation factor. But at the same time, when a thunderstorm hit that shook the house or a tornado came dangerously close to where we lived, I ran into my dad's arms because he could protect me from any storm. 
My dad was both powerful and tender, strong and gentle, and this is our God times 3,000. So God promises us his presence. He sends us help. He's going to save us, forgive us, restore us, remind us of his power and his gentleness, and then he tells us what we can do to prepare for his coming. Isaiah goes on, listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. This particular passage is quoted in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That doesn't happen very often. When John the Baptist was questioned as to who he was, he responded by telling them he was a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. This passage was John's call. I think his whole ministry was crafted after this chapter in Isaiah. John was there to clear the path to our minds and our hearts so that we could be open to receive Jesus. And how do we receive Jesus? I think the clue is found in the core of John's message and ministry, which again, I think you can find in the chapter of Isaiah. It's wrapped up in two words, repent and behold. So let's spend some time with repenting. Why was repenting an important part of clearing the path to receive the Savior? It's because sin is a part of our lives. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the scripture says. It reminds us of how much we need Jesus. And if you're anything like me, your sins have a tendency to get in the way of your relationship with him. When I lie to someone, or I'm short with my family, or I spend far too much time on my phone, all of these things create barriers in my walk with God. So to clear those barriers, to level the mountains and hills, to make way for the Spirit, I have to repent. I ask God for forgiveness and help to turn from the things that keep me from Him so that I may step into the life He's called me to, a life surrendered to the Holy Spirit. So I repent but I also behold, and I think it's critical to do these two things together. When John saw Jesus walking by him, he shouted to the crowd, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Shortly after that, he's standing with his disciples. Jesus walks by again, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the one who can take away your sin. Beholding is about worship. It's about focus, and the Israelites had lost their focus on God. They lost their trust in God, their belief in God. So through the trusted prophet Isaiah, God reminds them that he alone must be the center of their lives, that he alone can deliver them from exile, embarrassment, shame, and sin. He alone loves them more than life itself. So the second half of Isaiah, chapter 40, is all about the God who is worthy of worship. And because it's so beautiful and powerful, I'm just going to read a few snippets. Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? To whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? Haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God? The words he gave before the world began? Are you so ignorant? God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him. He spreads out the heavens like a curtain and makes his tent from them. 
To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asked the Holy One. Look up to the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. And then the famous passage that more people know. Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. God reminds his children who he is. The Israelite worldview at this time was dominated with the concept of many gods. Gods for everything you can imagine, for every season, every power, every region. But they were all man-made gods, limited in power, location, and scope. God needed to extract their polytheistic beliefs and reestablish himself as the one true God. He had to remind them to recenter their lives around the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God of all creation. The God who was not limited to people or location, but was over all, for all. We live in a world that is pushing God out of our lives. We push him out of our workplace, out of our markets, out of our homes, out of our schools, out of our hearts. And as an author once said, in the absence of God, any substitute will do. In the absence of God, any substitute will do. The Israelites had thought their God was gone, or at least not powerful enough to make a difference. So with their God gone, they replaced him with the gods of the Babylonians, who for all intents and purposes seemed more powerful, seemed more present. And we do the same thing in our own way. With our own idols and man-made gods, we replace God with politics, with conspiracy theories, with jobs, with information, with gossip, with lust, with technology, these things become our center, our focus, but we have to ask ourselves, what do these things give us back in return for our devotion? Do they make us more loving people, more joyful, more hopeful, more kind? Or do they make us more stressed, worried, angry, short-tempered, judgment, judgmental and shallow? What is the return for our investment? I've said this before, I'll continue saying it. The devil doesn't care what you're focused on as long as it's not Jesus. As long as God is either out of the picture or at least so far off center that you can't see him anymore, then the devil wins. So how do we combat the devil's traps and diversions? We repent and behold regularly, which then clears the way for God to invade our hearts, to pierce our souls and to restore our walk with him so that we may well remember who we are or rather, whose we are. Because when we remember whose we are, we become an unstoppable force for the one true God that helps us usher God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Today, I want to leave you with one practical application as to how to live this way, something I've been doing for a number of years. It's called the Prayer of Acts. It is an acronym. The Prayer of Acts uh, stands for A is adoration, C is confession, T is thanksgiving and S is supplication. And I just use this as a framework for my prayers. Adoration, of course, is praising God. It's worship. Praising God for all the things that he is. So I worship God first. And then I confess. Because often when I worship, the gap between me and God seems expansive. 
So I have to remember all that God has done to close that gap, to bring me into his arms. So I confess my sins, and then I offer up thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is, is thanking God for all that he's done, a spirit of gratitude and gratefulness, which I often feel after worship and confession. I want to thank him for the things I've seen him do in my life. And then lastly, supplication is sharing the burdens on my heart for others or for myself. And what's interesting is that when I do this prayer, when I follow this framework, I often come to prayer wanting things from God, which is supplication, right? It's usually the last step in this. I have so many things I want him to do. I have so many needs. But if I stop and I worship first, I behold first, then it puts things in perspective. And by the time I get through these other steps and I get to supplication, some of the things I thought I wanted, I don't anymore. I get a new perspective. Something changes in my heart. And I pray differently for people and for myself by the time I get through each of these steps. This is just one way to repent and behold. However you find to do it, repent and behold regularly. Confess your need for God to, to the only one worthy of worship so that the way to your heart is clear for God to come in and do his work, to commune with you, to transform you into the person he sees when he looks at you, a mighty hero. So let us confess our sins to the one who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us worship him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And let us sing praise to the one strong enough to save us and tender enough to hold us. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father God, I thank you for being big enough to care for my needs and my problems, being big enough to forgive us of sins and transgressions, big enough to remove our shame and our guilt. And I thank you for your presence that you promise to be with us always to the very end of the age. You are here in this room. You are here in our hearts. Let us recognize it, accept it, receive it, and let you transform us. Let us behold you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Keep you at the center of our lives so that the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. I love you so much, Jesus. Thank you for today's theophany, the Christophany that shows us more about who Jesus is and how you love us. And thank you for our fathers, Lord. Thank you for those that you've given us to guide us, to direct us, to speak wisdom into our lives and help us to honor them this weekend. We thank you. We love you. We can't wait to see you face to face until that day. Help us all to be a part of bringing heaven to earth. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, amen.